0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, fun lovers and fun haters, (laughs) pottery pottery throwers and non-pottery throwers, welcome to the Garden Statesman podcast. I'm Julian. I'm
1: Jeff. And I'm Mark. (laughs) All right. We got through it. Uh, This week, we're talking about a bunch of random stuff. A little Paramount Plus, maybe? uh possibly an explanation of what the new world order is lab leak theories i mean it's a lot of good conspiracy stuff and of course elon buying twitter i don't know we feel like we have to mention that um we were just talking about halloween off air you guys so what were were the costumes would you guys go as did you guys dress up to take your kids halloween trick-or-treating
2: I, I did I was uh my wife and I were Waldo like as in wheres Waldo oh nice okay Uh okay. yeah I I got like a, a very positive reaction everybody's like hey Waldo like much more <laughs> much more so than I, I feel like with any other costume I feel like if I was dressed as anything else they would just not care at all sure um so I found that interesting I also I saw the you know there's like a, an evil Waldo character that has oh, like yeah looks the same but is in the uh, yellow and black, mm-hmm. and so I ran into that guy, and it was a little bit awkward. <laughs> and you fought him? Um, I'm assuming. <laughs> I tried to, but he's pretty. He was pretty fast. He, <laughs> did, he take, did he take the scroll? Um, <laughs> he took the wait, scroll. Did, he
0: took the scroll. That's weird.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, and then and then the kids. You know, it's kind of interesting, actually. Like our kids uh, don't watch very much TV. And so I feel like they don't really like have character. Like, don't watch too too much TV. Don't watch too many movies. And so they're not like up to speed on characters or like topical uh, costume ideas. And so they mm. chose like very generic things. So like my my son was a ninja. My daughter was a vampire. Well,
1: I mean, um, these
2: are cla- two classics. 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 Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you can't go wrong. <laughs> can't go wrong.
0: Yeah, my my children, uh, six and a half uh, twins. Uh, Nico was an astronaut, which uh, was always oh, very cool. We, we like the uh, the space launches in our household. Um, and Cece, she uh, it looked like a unicorn princess outfit. I was corrected or something called an alicorn, which is like a derivative of a unicorn. You know, really things things you learn. Uh, I don't know hmm. where she found that out. But, uh, is that
1: like from a movie net or it's like I, actually a thing
0: I think we, we she read it in a story but it's like oh. actually like it's some sort of different kind of unicorn uh, but she was very adamant about it and i, I wore an 80 ski onesie
1: um which was pretty off, pretty off so the weird
0: pretty off the shelf but you know it was to to type and uh,
1: Alec horns are pony characters from My Little Pony Friendship is magic
0: there you go okay there. well there yeah. That's a...
1: <laughs> Alicorns or flying unicorns are See, a combination it? of all three races in, equest- in equestria. That must be where the My Little Ponies live. Totally, equestria, obviously. Are the, And the most powerful. Oh, well. She's a smart uh, young lady. Uh,
2: Jeff, you're doing a really good job pretending you're reading this and not reciting it <laughs> up your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am reading it. It's from this <laughs> tattoo I
1: got on my arm yeah. about it.
0: <laughs> It looks like a face tat, actually, but yeah, that's a little <laughs> awkward.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right. So, speaking of characters, um, Paramount Plus, which I still don't really know, like, you know, what they, what shows they have. I s- found this article in uh, TechCrunch that they now have forty six million global subscribers in Q three. Stock dropped nine percent on a revenue miss. Um, forty six millions more than i thought like that's that's pretty decent i mean what does netflix have they've got like 200 and some million do you know my yeah it's
2: like 2 224 roughly globally but you so know th- here here's the thing here's my reaction to that is like how are they defining a subscriber you know what's um how many of those are promotional subscribers that you know mm. they got through partnerships where they're not paying anything, but yep are in a that's free, true. free trial period. How 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 many of them are in free trial periods, just like normal free trial periods? So I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of that. That that's like a true a real number, yeah. comparable number, yeah, to to the number that Netflix has. Yeah, that's fair. I guess, um,
0: Mark, Mark, you follow this as a Netflix investor, but I, I, you, you're more fluent on these matters than than I am, at least. Uh, I'm curious, like, it seems like the, you know, Paramount, I remember, this is dating me a little bit, but like, wasn't Par- Paramount had to like a reverse merger with CBS, and then they had a huge like corporate infighting for their summer Redstone and his daughter, and then they launched a streaming service. I mean, there's been a lot of underperformance and challenges to that company as a whole but they have a big movie catalog and show catalog I mean they' maybe one of their uh, CEOs was ousted by me too as well um, but yeah I guess my take is like from what you've mostly told me there's an issue of you know can these smaller ones survive on their own or, or are they just m a targets what's your take on that
2: yeah I, I think you hit the nail on the head I mean I, and I don't think that paramount plus is one that's gonna survive uh, independently. Um, even some of the bigger ones, you know, Netflix is really the only profitable streaming service currently. Um, and the other ones are losing huge, huge amounts of money. Uh, paramounts, you know, way down the list in terms of subscribers, engagement, viewing time. Uh, Nielsen puts out this thing called a gauge where they, uh, they estimate viewing time for streamers. And when you get to 1%, you get broken out uh individually paramount has not yet you know hit that threshold and i don't think they're anywhere close Mm. um and so yeah i don't see them continuing as a as a standalone company and and to your point they're attached to this like larger traditional video media company um primarily made up of cbs but also like the paramount movie studio uh and that business is just imploding like as we speak um if you look at any of the data from uh like pay TV subscriptions or viewership for broadcast or cable television. It's like, it's literally imploding right now. Um, and that's just going to continue and get worse. Uh, these companies are going to, you know, it's, it's like a downward spiral where they get less viewers, less advertising revenue, they can create right. less content, which leads to less viewers. And it just like implodes um, very quickly. And it's its very, very obvious that that's in the process of happening uh, so, like, not only is the streaming service uh, not on solid ground, but the rest of the company isn't as well. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I I'm a little bit skeptical that the the catalogs are worth, you know, phenomenal. They're worth something for sure, but are they worth, you know, phenomenal amounts of money? Um, you know, that's a bigger question. I think some of the franchises. I, I think what's what's kind of interesting about Paramount they have. Uh, Somehow, I don't, I don't know what their ownership is exactly, but they own, like, the Star Trek, all the Star Trek stuff. Um, yeah, like, I think, I think they, that's. Uh, I
1: mean, I'm looking at their website, and, like, they own some pretty big media properties. Comedy Central, right. MTV, Nickelodeon, so CBS. But then, like, you know, Jackass Forever is in here. Sonic the Hedgehog, like, mo- the movies, well, movies-wise. There, so, there's content. I mean... Yeah, I guess my I, I,
0: my my take on it is I, I have for all disclosure I I have Paramount Plus. Um, I I, I think the the main reason for oh, getting Paw it was, Patrol was Oof. to uh was to watch um uh, Yellowstone. I, I like that show. I also like the spin-off spinoff uh, 1883. Both have been worth watching. Um, but the yeah I think they also CBS, my own Showtime, and like some of them those some of those programs have been on there at least on a free trial basis. And then I know we've talked about this in the past, but as someone who enjoys, you know, occasionally watching some uh, professional soccer highlights, they do have some of uh, those games too for sports content. But I mean the big one movie wise, I thought like why everyone at least they saw a spike in subscribers was um uh, the new Top Gun movie, which I'm not sure if is on there oh. yet. But like you know that Paramount does have a big film library. Yeah and, you know you got I guess you know if content is king uh, or if that ma- if that you know if you need like something like Mark, you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Amazon buying like MGM Studios for all the James Bond movies, you know if there's Disney has obviously tons of uh, original content, you know Netflix spends a ton of money on content production for original as well as paid, you know that that is that has some value. I, I don't follow it. I don't know what that uh, you know actually ends up to or whose hands it goes into, but you can see where there there are some properties there that are, are worth something or people would want to see.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like something like bond where it's like, all right, you're, they're going to be, people are going to be making bond movies probably 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there's value in that. And that's really interesting if it's something like um, you know, of the, like top gun i mean you can make another top gun movie but how many top gun movies are you really going to make um i think that that's like less of a huge reason to to acquire paramount i mean i think you can you can license it um is that what you think that's
1: kind yeah like what so you think the the content just gets licensed like they just turn this into like a
2: licensing company basically yeah, so Sony has gone in that direction where Sony has a film studio and they are just an arms dealer. They're like, we're not going to get out okay. streaming. We're going to sell to streamers and we're going to make you know a markup. Uh, we're going to make a profit margin off for everything we sell. And if we right. do a good job, it'll be a good business. Or it'll be an okay business, not like a phenomenal business. And sure. I think I could easily see Paramount going in that direction where they just say like, hey, That's interesting. we'll have the film studio, the, you know, television or streaming studio and then you know milk everything else um would be you know one direction that the company would go and i don't, I don't think it's like they have to sell to somebody else although that, that could be how things turn out um yeah i don't
1: i mean yeah. it's hard for me to believe that they would do that just because they're not just streaming i mean like it's freaking cbs basically so it's uh, you know obviously someone could buy the company but I don't know. It, it's just a str- it's such a strange world that they have to be in right now because they're still probably trying to hold on to some sort of weird cable deals they have, but then also trying to stream on their own. And yeah, anyway, I I mean, forty six million, yeah, is better than I thought it would be. But you're right in terms of like it could all be promotional. Who knows? Although, yeah, you know, At- two of the four of us have it, so.
2: There's that the, too. The The other thing I would say is like a lot of these companies, there there's how much they're spending. There's a lot of focus on like how much each of the streaming services is spending on content per year. Uh, but what gets lost a little bit is the library. And so I think that's particularly relevant for all these legacy companies that have come out with streaming services and they've basically put their entire library on these services. Um, and that's one way that they've, I think, been able to compete with Netflix uh, without mm-hmm. spending so much each year, is because they're able to leverage all this old stuff that, you know, a lot of people haven't seen, and they're like, oh, I can look at watch all this old stuff. But that that runs out at some point. Um, yeah, great point. And, and I think that'll be that'll be a change and a challenge for for many of these companies. That, um, you know, once people get through the the library, the catalog, and see what they want to see, they may not be totally happy with um, the rate of new content that's being added. And it's also a a counterpoint for Netflix is, you know, Netflix's value proposition is only increasing as they get more and more original content and their library continues to grow and grow and grow. Um, And I think that's an advantage of Netflix that people sometimes forget is that they they really have no library. Like they live and die by, uh, you know, what they're producing every year. And, And that's changing, you know, gradually, but 10 years from now in the future, it's going to be a totally different story. There's going to be tons and tons and tons of stuff that uh, they're not paying for in the current year, but that's, you know, valued by uh, existing and prospective users from like stuff that they just didn't get around to watching. I mean, I know personally, granted, I, my viewing habits don't reflect the the average person's viewing habits. I, I watch a lot, a lot less TV than, than other people, but um, you know, there's no way I can get through all the stuff on there and, that's oh, no, it's not even, not even close. Yeah. I mean, but... Only going to get that that more is, significant going forward.
1: To some extent, one of my complaints with Netflix is I do feel like a lot of the stuff that I see on there is just junky, like, this is easy entertainment type stuff. Like, there's no... I shouldn't say there's no, but there's very few shows where you're like, oh, I would go watch that again. What about about
0: documentaries, though? I feel Netflix has some good – I'm not saying they don't –
1: yeah. They do good stuff. I guess my point – my thinking is kind of like uh, the catalogs of like classic, you know, whatever. You know, whatever. I'm looking at – I mean, Paramount Plus is hard to come up with. I guess my question, my, my
0: question is too, I mean, in, you know, again, maybe we're not reflective of the population as a whole or the viewership demographics of any of these streaming services. Um, but, you know, and Mark, please press back on this because you know more about this than anyone else on the show. But the, you know, we're in this maybe strange time where you have legacy media and streamers competing with both original content and big content libraries. And from our show the other week, you know, it's it's very fragmented landscape. But that's probably not sustainable economically. And if there is consolidation amongst all these media properties, both old and new, whoever's the acquirer being acquired, eventually people are going to have more concentration of where these things they want to watch all are. And someone like our friend, uh, the pottery master, um, Michael, uh, you know, he, he doesn't need to subscribe to eight of these things just to watch his favorite Premier League team you know, I'll be more in a concentrated place. Like, is that a reasonable assumption?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, the other, I would say the other thing to think about is not like how many subscribers do they have in any moment, but like how many subscriber months per year. And so I, I, I think you could see people like, and you already see this behavior a little bit where it's like, all right, you subscribe to maybe like two services year round, and then you kind of dip in and out of other ones, um, you know. So you'll do Paramount for you know a few months, or maybe during like the soccer season. I, I don't know how long they they offer soccer, but if they offer soccer for four or five months, maybe subscribe for those four or five months and and watch their catalog, and then you cancel and you try something else uh, afterward. But yeah, I, I do. I definitely do think that there will be you know more concentrated uh, viewing. And subscriptions, although, you know, because you have this ability to go in and out of services each month, it's not like, oh, it's only five per year. It could be, you know, maybe four at any given time, but six over the course of the year something like that. Yeah. That makes sense.
1: That's what I've been trying to do, but I've had HBO Plus for like, uh, or HBO Max, whatever it is for like six months now. And I think I was planning on keeping it for one and watching one show and being like, okay, I'm done. And then I just don't really cancel it. But that is what I think the best way to do it is, is
2: just to rotate through anyway. Yeah. And and especially right. for something like H- HBO, where they have like, I feel like a lot of the value in HBO, you have like a lot of good, a lot of uh, library content that I haven't watched. And you get like some shows that you really want to watch at, points in time. Right. But and that is why I ended up that, getting it. Yeah. Yeah. But then for the rest of the time, it doesn't have enough that to justify like watching it on a regular basis or being like the first thing you open up when you're like, oh, I want to watch something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do agree that like Netflix is the
1: staple. If you're, if any of them are going to be a staple, it's going to be Netflix. And then the rest of them are kind of like when it comes out with something good, I'll check it
2: out. But. Yeah. And by the way, I, I agree with your point that, and Netflix does, Netflix's management has said this as well, that like basically they had to ramp up their original content spending enormously mm-hmm. over the past decade. And, you know, it's kind of like a, on a restaurant, uh, there's like restaurant sign. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it or heard of it, but they're like, you can, you can get your food fast, cheap, or good. Like choose two. Right, right. Um, and so, so Netflix kind of had the same challenge where it's like they could get their original content, uh, big, like quickly big or high quality. And they chose to get like big and very quickly. Sure. Um, and it's not to say that they don't have some high quality stuff, but I think oh yeah, a lot know
1: No, they definitely to, do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of room to like improve the efficiency of their content <coughs> spend, get more bang for the buck, um, and i think that'll be a big focus over the next, you know, over the next decade.
1: Nice. So getting into our more conspiratorial theory <laughs> aspect of the show. Julian, what is the new world order? Okay, so i'll i'll preface this by saying <laughs> you, i you
0: immediately ask me. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're the only one that would know this <laughs> sort of weird so, stuff.
0: I'm glad. I'm, I guess the in-house conspiracy theorist, all right.
2: Well, so uh,
1: yeah, go, go, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> no,
2: I was going to say, yeah, it would help to have some background, because I remember this came up, but I don't remember from where.
1: So he, all right, so Julian mentioned the words at one point, and I, it, that cued me, because I've been watching a bunch of these, like, prepper-type people um, on YouTube, and a couple of them, like, one guy's just, like, a homesteader, but he he's real right-wing, and, like, Right wing, in a way that I don't know anyone that that's, that's that's right, like, you know, he doesn't, he believes in strange things. He was raised in a Christian cult. Like, there's, he's out there. And... This other guy just started following because he has this solar, it's mostly because I'm interested in like this off-grid stuff and these guys will like be doing their own solar system and I'm like, oh, I wonder how to, you know, wonder how you do that. Wonder what, how many panels they need and what kind of batteries they're using. So, I'll I'll follow this guy and he's got this crazy awesome off-grid property. I think he's, this guy's in Canada. Uh, with his big solar array and like a greenhouse and multiple greenhouses and like a sunken green all this crazy stuff. I'm like oh, this is so cool this guy must be real smart and then he starts spouting off his the new world order and th- it's it's some sort of like I th- this is this is my interpretation of what what it is um, they believe that, it's the Democrats are it's like one of the George Soros things, right? So someone in Europe is planning on creating an entire world, global government. and they're basically controlling everyone's everything. So almost every new thing, like electric cars are part of it. They're gonna the whole idea of like share the shared economy is just to keep you poor so that they can control you. And that they have more power. Like that's effectively the fear that I'm getting from this guy. I don't know what and he's mentioned New World Order. And so that's that's all I really know about it. And I'm fascinated <laughs> yeah. to hear what the hell this this is.
0: I mean, people call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't know what you're listening to or watching on the <laughs> internet. I mean this. Is, <laughs> yeah. My oh he's nuts. My stuff's pretty tame <laughs> compared to, to, to compared to that. Um well I, I think I I actually think this is an interesting conversation because, you know, I think a lot of times um, in popular media or mainstream media um, or just maybe, you know, in different um, parts of the political spectrum, a lot of these terms are thrown around loosely without proper definition. um, And there's a lot of conflation um, about that. Um, Also, I think there's, you know, like anything, there's a there's a spectrum of um, what something could be or may be within a, a theoretical framework. So. My understanding of the New World Order is uh, you know, much more, I would say, you know, classical political science uh and more comes from more mainstream school of thought where you potentially wizard are, people. No, you're potentially <laughs> you're potentially right now, um, and not to get into a um a political discussion, but a, on a you know, just a geopolitical framework for both um politics and a monetary system. You're perhaps uh, moving from a unipolar uh, world of the U.S. being the sole superpower, um, which has been its preeminent global hegemony um, since the kind of the Francis Fukuyama um, end of history, uh, end of the Cold War, where the U.S. government and the U.S. dollar and Western alliance uh, reign supreme from both a um, geopolitical influence and from a economic-stored influence um, where you have a lot of multilateral alliances, you have free trade, and in a perhaps a new world order, the way I've heard it described and at least discussed amongst, you know, I would say serious people more in the uh, mainstream thought would be perhaps you now have a multipolar world. So, you know, the idea of China Perhaps coming up as a, a natural rival to the U.S. from a uh, again another multi-power, multipolar polarity of um, both opposition but competition and even some cooperation. Um, developing countries like the BRIC nations forming their own block to be counterweight to a U.S.-dominated foreign policy or economic policy so that would be the idea of more of a multipolar world and also you know non nation state actors whether it's um economic trading blocks or the rise of new technology um or even you know bad actors like uh non nation state terrorists you know fomenting war and war not being just about one country versus another um you know there's subcurrents of all these things you know sometimes nationalism plays a role in this and i think Jeff, some of the stuff you were alluding to is where you see more of the the left versus right paradigm of uh, you know nationalism or the idea that you know certain uh, factions are going to suppress or oppress another faction internally for domestic disputes. Um, you know that's not the kind of stuff that I've you know spoken about when yeah, I've yours heard-
1: sounds. Much more reasonable and, yeah, and like and again, and again thoughtful, I, I, right? I, think, I was looking for conspiracy theories, Julian.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess. I, I know. Yeah, of, Julian, yeah. that was that was
2: too, too, way too reasonable, way too eloquent. I was <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I guess Julian's. You know.
0: Again, conspiracy conspiracy theorist turns conspiracy fact, right? You know. It's. Uh, I guess. You know. I'm not as, not as out there as hopefully the audience hopes. Um, but yeah, okay. like any like anything, there's subcurrents and factions that are you know either more palatable or perhaps more common uh and more out there than in others so i think you know what jeff's talking probably exists within that you know big uh big tent too but it it, um you know i i don't think these i think it can mean a lot of different things to when people are talking about and you just need to make sure you know what people are talking about
1: yeah i think the the stuff yeah the stuff that this guy was talking about is and i i do feel bad for these guys like these guys are generally very blue collar like You know, never went to college, never even really thought about going to college. No one in their families went to college. And it's kind of like they feel like the rich people have everything and they have no real chance at getting there because they're always working these hourly jobs. And I do feel a bit for them, but like where they go with this, where it's like this, this everyone's trying to control me thing is you know whatever i i feel bad for the guy honestly but he's also gotten to a place where he he owns all his own stuff and he has 40 acres of land and he's doing fine and so he'll be fine but you just feel bad for these people that go down these weird conspiratorial things whereas the new world order you're talking about seems like a, a pretty much inevitability i don't know when but like like is china going to be another superpower like yeah they already are and yeah like we and, are gonna have to deal with them right as equals at some point or there or, are there
0: big like economic currents into into this too i mean we had a prior episode on crypto you know part of this is you know people saying you know we don't you know like the dollar is a global reserve currency and we don't like governments controlling monetary policy or fiscal policy so we want to create an all alternative currency that may be outside the tax system. So that could be a new world economic order. I think there's, you know, just like, you know, we have a two party system currently in the U S and, you know, within that there's factions of, you know, right and left and everything in between. And people have talked about is there room for a third political party? That could be a new world political order. I think there's all of these are potential variations of this discussion and topic, and it doesn't just all have to be tinfoil hat or, crazy uh, folks on the left or right who are you know other ultra nationalists or trying to oppress other people or you know hoist their point of view on um, other folks uh yeah it's I think yeah you know, we shouldn't necessarily all get into hyperbole and um, hy- hysterics around discussing things that you know could be very natural course of history where you've had powers rise and fall you've had monetary systems rise and fall and that isn't necessarily catastrophic. It uh, it can be. It can lead to war. It can lead to currency it crisis. It depends on who you are, right? Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, like, you know, we have cycles of history that um, can, you know, go through this too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking of being reasonable, so the lab leak theory, China designed a virus and unleashed it on the world to kill Americans, right? Is that, am
2: I reading that right? I think I think so. I mean, we, we've uh, <clears throat> there's been some interesting things that have come out uh, over the past few weeks along those lines. And as you guys know, I've always assigned like I, I don't generally think of things as either like I believe in X or I believe in Y. I kind of think of it probabilistically. I think well, that's most likely, or I assign high probability to that. But you know, there's some chance that that's not right. Um, and so with the the idea that uh, COVID came from a lab as part of a leak, I always assigned a, a much higher probability to that than most other people, and I thought it was actually the, the most likely scenario. Just doing kind of rough estimates of, our, all right, like how likely, all right, there was a, a lab studying coronaviruses where um, the disease first emerged. What's the probability of a, a, a leak in such a lab every year versus uh a virus like that randomly just emerging from nature in that same uh same city. And those rough estimates got to like it's like ten times more likely to that it came from the lab than than from nature. Um and granted that doesn't mean that like, oh yes, that's definitive evidence, but if I have to put odds, that's what I'm gonna follow and and that's why uh I felt it was a lab leak. On top of the fact that, you know, if you just look at China's behavior this whole time, I mean they've been uh you couldn't act more guilty basically <laughs> you couldn't like <laughs> act more like you were trying to cover something up so that yeah. also although played don't a role you think on. they'd be trying to cover
1: something up no matter what i actually i don't necessi- well i i haven't looked into it as much as you i i still don't put a very high probability on lab leak to be honest uh, and i mostly do that my, mo- my my rationale there is mostly that i think people people subscribe or prescribe the actions of other people higher than they, pers- than they assume nature could ever be. And in reality, I generally, it's generally the opposite. Like, it's generally not an anthrop- anthropomorphized thing where someone's trying to get you. And I guess that's what kind of scares me about the lab leak theory in general is like, the real theory is that they were, prov- they were doing research... And it was like an accident if something got out, right? But I think people read it as China was designing viruses to hurt people, and then that got out.
0: but I, I don't I don't think you necessarily have to go that far. I mean, you know, I think all, for full disclosure, all all of the people on this podcast are in various aspects of the investment industry, and we you know I think all think about risk a lot and we think about probabilities and calculated risk and you know, kidding aside, where sometimes we get accused for being ideological. I think we're all fairly pragmatic. Um, and you know, my I always thought what was so sad about this whole pandemic virus origin debate. You know, particularly at the very very beginning when you know, and it was you know very much tied up into politics and left and right camps, at least domestically in the U.S., but even worldwide, where in xenophobia as well, where you just stifled dissent for an actual, you know, scientific and intellectual inquiry on where a virus and a pandemic that no one had lived through a pandemic in our lifetimes for the whole world, where it came from. And, you know, just from as a betting person, you you would, I mean, my, my, the question always stuck in my mind is like, okay, you know, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but the two major bioweapons labs and virus study places in the U.S. are Fort uh, Meade, I believe, in uh, Maryland, and uh, the CDC in Atlanta. If just like in an alternate universe, you had a virus break out in any of those places, you'd be like, hmm, a reasonable place to look might be like Fort Meade if like a virus got out or like the CDC. Guess what? The only place in all of China where they do you know, bioweapons and virus study is the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. Hmm, maybe we should like look the fuck into that. Like, and maybe we should have a reasonable discussion on, and look, I'm not saying it's Occam's razor. The easiest explanation is true. I don't know if that's true or not. I just think it's a reasonable discourse and discussion to have.
1: And I think you can well, have- and the, that's the problem, right? That's it's, the problem. It's hard to have the discussion. Right. That, especially when China is- not really participating in any reasonable discussion, no matter what. Like, that's the other thing is, right. I, I guess my what I originally interrupted Mark about is, uh, it, China is going to deny everything no matter what. Like, there not their story still, it came from frozen food from some other country, some completely bullshit I mean, thing.
0: at some point, they tried to say it came from the U.S. and, you know, yeah. but like, or yeah, but they definitely promoted the the wet market theory coming from zoologically from animals and a bat and you know, again, like I you know, at some point where where's the political rhetoric and gamesmanship and
1: you know Well and that's kind of yeah. the issue. It would well, be nice if everyone would actually say, Hey, we don't want this to happen again. Let's all work together. Right, exactly. But- Apparently. I mean
2: in contrast I think I think we did identify where the original SARS came from and so there was some degree of cooperation I think they identified like they found the bats and they found the intermediate host but like um, five it, or uh, ten years later right I I actually think it was much sooner right? and, and I think oh, like okay. the in order to do that there had to be like a higher degree of cooperation but really like the specific thing that um, uh, and part of the reason why we're talking about it is the uh, Congress put out this report basically saying yep. that uh, they think that the most likely scenario is that it was a lab leak as opposed to a, a natural origin. And that came out, you know, the last week or the week prior. Yeah, recently. Um, and so like it's gone from, you know, was being dismissed to a lot of people to now Congress is saying like, this is the most likely thing. The other thing. Um, and so uh, I forget, whether it was you, Jeff, or Julian, who made the point that, like, oh, some people dismiss this lab leak theory because you know they assume that it means that the the virus was engineered, which is not necessarily the case. And I'd actually always put like a low probability on that. I would. I thought that that was unlikely that it was an engineered. I, I didn't virus. say that.
1: Yeah, I don't think that was you just miss it or I dismiss it because of that. I'm saying I think that's the danger in this. I think people hear lab leak theory from China. And that's exactly – like that's where people's mind jumps, which is probably why whoever, the government or media wanted to suppress that because we didn't want it to become a China-engineered this virus.
0: But it's not It's not an honest – again, it's never good, I think, to quell honest inquiry for science or scientific origin questions or science in general if you're just trying to get to the truth on how to particularly prevent something in the future – and, I, you know, I think to, to your point about maybe the slippery slope argument, it's like, you know, when I look at the probabilistic scale. It's like for me, it's, it seems like there's a lot of compelling evidence for it came from an accidental leak in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's less uh, probability in my mind that that was intentional or it was weaponized by China sure. on the world. And you don't have to, you know, be an unreasonable person to not make that jump. If you're having an honest debate about it, which, of course, you know, we don't have that in our social media or, you know, politicized uh, world. But then, you know, you get into more interesting questions, which, you know, also deserve investigation of, you know, did the U.S. give gain-of-function funding to, you know, the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And if so, you know, was it – look, there's plenty of times where you have a good reason of doing something. There's unintended consequences, but – you know, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been plenty of evidence that that Wuhan Institute of Virology had a history of leaks before and that there was gain-of-function research done there. And, you know, again, where there's smoke, there isn't necessarily fire and it's you don't want to make false conclusions. But at least it's not you know, saying that, oh, this is like absolutely out of the blue that you're making some wild conspiratorial accusation. There's at least some, you know, reasonable, uh, you know, precedent to have a, a line of inquiry on this
2: yeah and and well the other thing that i was going to point to that came out recently and it was a it was a paper written by a bunch of credible scientists so not like hacks but they basically did a statistical analysis of the um dna or rna basically the um yeah whatever dna of rna or of uh 19 and they looked at the um the sequences that scientists would use to manipulate the DNA. Uh, And they basically ran a statistical analysis to say, all right, what are the chances of that, what we are seeing uh, in this DNA, which would be useful to someone who was trying to create it, um, what are the chances that this would happen in nature randomly? And it's like 100,000 to one. And then if you add other unique factors, of the dna it goes up to like a hundred million to one that this would occur randomly in nature and that's not definitive and granted like there's a lot of randomness in nature and so seeing something like that isn't necessarily well yeah
1: again it's um yeah it's the same argument right it's a probability so it doesn't mean it didn't happen but it means it's unlikely right,
2: but exactly yeah but that it just happened randomly <clears throat> um and so I had assi- I'd always assigned a small probability to the idea that this was a not a natural virus. Um, I always felt it came from the lag, but was probably a natural virus. They took some samples, they were doing some studies on it, and it just leaked. Um, but with this recent paper that came out, I now assign a much higher probability that this was actually uh, the result of gain-of-function research, basically... Uh, research along those lines. I don't know exactly where people draw the line for gain-of-function versus not, but basically a, a virus that was created in a lab, taken from, you know, a virus in nature, manipulated, um, and then it accidentally leaked, which is just, yeah. you know, so okay. shocking. It's unfortunate. Really, that something like that could happen.
1: Well, you know, and I just and, I, I was trying to find it, and I, I can't right now, but, like, someone... Someone in the US, some university in the US is doing more gain of function research on coronavirus. And you're like, Yeah, guys, but wasn't
0: it MIT? I think I saw it on well, the news. Was either. it MIT? Or like BU or somewhere in Boston?
1: I For some reason, I, I was <coughs> thinking it was in Maryland, but it could have been Boston. Um, but it's just, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the, the positive of the lab leak theory thing being more likely is, is maybe just that, that maybe we have a conversation about. The safety yeah. of the labs. Yeah. Should the we be doing this? Safety sort of, thing? of
0: labs. What kind of research should you be doing? What are the protocols? What are, what are the penalties if this you know happens? How do you prevent it in the future? Like, those are right. all really reasonable questions. When you know what millions of people died, you know, and there's probably and what there's well, we no shut account. down the whole freaking yeah, it, globe. Yeah, I mean you could say tens of millions yeah. of people died. You know, for all the second and third order effects, um, you know, economically and socially, all of it. Um, yeah, I find it, it – it's really – it's a really bad precedent um, for world governments and for people in the media and in um, other positions of power to stifle debate, to not, uh, you know, allow for, you know, honest, honest, uh, curious questions to be asked that could lead to a better understanding. So you prevent these things from happening in the future. That, I think that's it, all I'm saying.
1: So, I mean, I – I kind of agree, I agree with you there in terms of, like, the general sentiment, but I do also kind of think healthy debate can only happen after the fact. Like, when we're in it, and I don't particularly like how the government handled any of this stuff for suppressing what they didn't like people saying uh, and the media companies and everything else, but it, there was a danger there, right? Like, if if... If we all just said that China made this virus and blamed them for it, that's not that is not going to lead to a healthy.
0: There, look, I'm not conversation. I mean, I'm, I'm even going to be more uh, sympathetic to. You know, I'm, I'm a big critic of a lot of aspects of the government and people in power on both sides of the aisle, but I would, you know, look. It's it's hard. If you're in a position of power, which I, I certainly am not and um, you know, was in, in that seat and didn't have the benefit of, of hindsight, I think government's natural reaction or people in power is to overreact and over respond, uh, then not mm-hmm. do anything. And, you know, when I look at, you know, the COVID policy as a whole in an information vacuum or where you didn't know things and things were changing rapidly, the error is always going to be on being more conservative and overreacting, which they did a lot of, right? That I think yeah. was shutdowns. I think that was, you know, vaccination mandates and protocols. That was all sorts of things. But Just
1: all the shaming. All the sh- all shaming. Yeah,
0: all of yeah. that. I mean, that that in some ways is very logical that people would do that. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I understand why people could err on that side of it. But you know what? We should look back at that and say, okay, now we have much better information on how dangerous this was or not. You know what were these policy responses sometimes worse than the actual virus? You know, for hurting small businesses, yeah. kids being out of school for two years and having big learning gaps. You know, all, wearing you know, masks, wearing, while
1: they're wearing, trying to learn to
0: talk. Exactly, like all 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 these issues. We and we the fact that you can't have an honest debate about that even now, I think is really troubling.
2: Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Also, uh just on a point you made earlier, these virologists come across as just complete degenerates in terms of like you know how risky this research is, and yet they like keep doing it. It's, they're like yeah. heroin addicts that like right. they can't help themselves. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. You're like, yeah. w- When I read about this stuff, in, I-, I do think it was Boston University. You like smack your head. You're like, what or what the heck are you thinking? Right. Let's do let's do that uh, one again. Uh, we didn't. Yeah. We didn't yeah. get well.
1: And like that one on the same virus this soon. Like I could see if they were doing the SARS or the original SARS virus or COVID twenty years from now. But, like, too soon, guys. Like, what? Yeah, exactly, Mark. You slap your head and you're like, what
0: what the fuck are you thinking? But, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, this might be a segue to our next conversation, but, you know, just using uh, what what stifling debate as an example, you know, the amount, there are a lot of respected scientists and doctors and also uh, various policy figures who were literally banned from social media or shunned from any sort of... You know, we're called conspiratorial cranks for even suggesting this when in March, April, June of 2020. And, you know, guess what? I think those people have been really vindicated and proven right. And, you know, joking aside about the conspiracy, conspiracy theorist becomes conspiracy fact sometimes. But, you know, those are that's a great example of, you know, what seemed like, you know, a fringe belief at the time actually turned out to be, you know what? a pretty thoughtful and balanced point of view uh, with hindsight and retrospect. And, you know, that, I think that that would also be something that's worth considering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just looked it up. It, it is Boston University. <sighs> typical BU. Typical. <laughs> typical. Typical BU. So, yeah. Um, what's our next topic here? Twitter? I mean, did something happen at Twitter? <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of controversy. I have to say, I am, I am loving just the absolute outrage over the stupid blue checkmark bullshit. Like, the people that have these blue checkmarks value them as if, what's her face? AOC, you sent, sent this tweet to us, Mark. Yeah. She, she equated not having to be charged for a, a subscription for the blue checkmark as not free speech. <laughs> I don't I don't understand the logic. I don't understand how you could come to that conclusion, but anyways, some people are just freaking out about I don't understand why anyone cares at all about the blue check mark, but um, I think it was kind of tw- for anyone that doesn't use Twitter and doesn't know. I think this blue check mark used to was supposed to be a validation of the person being a real person or being a public figure or whatever. I think it turned into some sort of, like, power user badge because, like, certain people got them, certain people didn't. Generally, people on the right didn't get them, people on the left did, and it it really became kind of, like, Twitter deemed you valid type thing, and now Elon's saying, I'm just going to charge eight bucks and whoever wants one can have one, and people are losing their shit about that which I find hilarious, but yeah. I'm also a Twitter th- or an Elon fan. So, you know. Yeah, I would that.
0: say is, that, you know, and I'm on the record for being critical of Elon in many things. Uh, I'm, I'm saying I, I actually, I really am enjoying this Twitter saga from, and I actually give him a lot of credit. Uh, one, I think, first of all, he's a world-class troll. He's hilarious. I mean, um, hilarious. On, I mean, yeah. the fact he, especially he's got a very deft touch for poking the bear and using social media and really trolling the right people. Um, so, credit where credit's due on that. Also, I think it's, I think it's a fat, this will be a fascinating business case study. And, you know, I mean, he looks like he massively overpaid for this thing. Um, you know, if he, you know, he bought it at maybe the peak of a market cycle for, you know, he's, where the, the debt oh, burden couldn't
1: have been a worse time. Couldn't have been a for, worse time from, Though, from like every aspect of the deal. From like, every from aspect Tesla of Tesla stock, Twitter yeah. stock.
0: I mean, it's just yeah. like, I mean, it's just, he massively overpaid for it the debt burden on this thing basically eats up its entire cash flow to pay for the interest now that being said you know that if you read that twitter book i recommended on the past podcast of um, hatching twitter you know the notion that it's a you know a clown car that fell into a gold mine where it's a great product that's never been really a great stock or pro- a great business and never really you know had product uh, innovation and good management I love the fact that they're iterating and developing things in real time and like, you know, moving fast and breaking things. And people are like, you know, uncomfortable about it or, you know, there's, I mean, you're gonna first, of all, like here's another great example. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, applauding anyone who's personally affected by this, but you know, all these Silicon Valley companies that just have so many employees and you know, they're gonna do a massive layoff situation like as a PE, like basically a leverage buyout they're going to you know cut costs dramatically i mean you're going to have a like it's going to be a really interesting case study for like how lean some of these advertising businesses like a facebook like a google could potentially be run like if he if he cuts off like 50 70% of the staff and it turns out they make more money with lower yeah. costs and it's a better product i think there're going to be a lot of activist investors who i maybe not against facebook or google are going to say hey wait a minute silicon valley companies like how many fucking engineers or employees do you need working on what like you yeah. know look what they did i mean that could all be really fascinating so i don't know, i'm enjoying it from just a business interest perspective even though i still have qualms with you know elon as a person or a leader or you know some of his other uh, ventures um but yeah i think it could be it'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out
2: yeah um yeah and also very interesting from a pricing perspective to see how how this goes down i think his um, exchange with Stephen King got a lot of attention where he he initially had said, all right, 20 bucks a month for the blue check. And Stephen King, the author, was like, no way. I'm out of here for 20 bucks a month. And then Elon was, well, how about eight? Um, right. And now it's kind of at eight. But I I, I thought Stephen King was like not a good um, representation of the typical blue check person because Stephen King has been famous for decades. I mean, when – right. We were in everyone high school knows he was his famous. name yeah. Yeah, everyone knows who he is. He doesn't he doesn't really need a blue check. I mean, you want to know that it's actually him and he he might prefer it for different reasons just so like he he's not lost amidst um fake Stephen King accounts. Sure. But uh but for most other people it's like the blue check people don't know who you are and they see the blue check first and they're like, "Oh, this is someone who is worthwhile to pay attention to because other people pay attention to them." And so I actually think like a lot of people with a blue check, like it's not a question like they are going to pay that money, (laughs) right? Um, And a lot of people who don't have a blue check will be like, oh, if I pay this money, I'm going to get more followers. It's going to be easier to get followers. People are going to respond to me. All these things. Um, And so I I think it's pretty interesting in that respect. It'll, It'll be pretty pretty interesting to see how well this sticks. I also feel like there are a ton of other things that they could do. Um, from a pricing perspective that the the prior management team just you know didn't have the urgency to to experiment and try and, and it's also fascinating like Elon's got a lot of criticism for having this conversation out in the open around like pricing and things to do but right now twitter's collecting like an insane amount of data on how what people's reactions are to this like you know right. they yeah. tons of people are talking about this they're like oh not this price like that not that price what do we like what don't we like and i bet you know twitter's got the tools to do you no know, you know sentiment analysis and see you know what people are saying and draw out common themes and you know what people like what they don't like what other features people are talking about and you know it's a, it, again people criticize him for like bringing something out that's half baked but he's gotten the conversation started and i think that will enable them to quickly land on You know a a new uh, pricing pricing and versioning of the product, and that's always been much better.
1: Twitter's massive issue is that they they have ideas that they just never implement. I mean, people have been calling for the edit button on tweets for what a decade, and they rolled it out like last month, and they kept saying they can't do. We just can't do it. It's impossible. And then they did it and it's like okay that was pretty easy and reasonable and like made perfect sense and like or or just
0: like i mean the fact that you know we've all analyzed you know the the power of uh, subscription businesses and subscription revenue versus advertising revenue which the former is much more s- sticky and the latter's uh um you know much more cyclical uh, you know that is a great debate and yeah, it's you know the fact that you know there is something to be said about a private company With you know someone who's can really uh, you know make decisions fast and be nimble, you know, and look they're probably going to have plenty of failures and stumbles. uh, Sure, and it might
1: also Twitter. So like, right? How bad could a failure be? It's like, oh, some people didn't. their tweet didn't go out. I mean, who gives? Like, no, yeah, and I was
0: saying more of like from a business perspective, like, can you like you know actually pay your debt burden if you you know all the advertisers flee? Which you know apparently there's some advertisers boycotting it because. You know, rightfully, if you're GM, do you want the owner, majority shareholder of Tesla, to also, you know, own a platform that you're giving money to for a rival? Like, there's, you know, or do you want it to become? Are you worried that if, you know, what is free? You know, this whole question of is a digital town square, and you know, what are the limits on free speech? You know, both constitutionally and from a, um, you know, a business, you know, environment. You know, do you want to be, you know, an advertiser and a brand that's next to hate speech? Um, you know, sure. so I think there's like, yeah, there's real questions about and real challenges. Like, I don't think these are easy problems to solve. That's why, you know, both on a, a business case study as well as a, you know, freedom of speech and uh, value as a uh, digital town square. It'll be really interesting to see, you know, who stays and who leaves and, you know, how this you know, shakes out from a power of a tool.
1: Do you guys understand? You just you know mentioned hate speech, and that's I feel like that's a topic that comes up ad infinitum right now about Twitter. Like everyone that's against this basically just goes right there that it's going to be Nazis spouting out hate speech constantly. I, Twitter is what you make it. Like you follow the people that you want to follow. I don't see any hate speech. I don't see any. I don't see any of this. Like I follow finance people like programmers. Like, right. I see this re- kind of fun, pretty positive overall place unless I go into politics discussions and then you see people just shitting on each other constantly uh, on both sides. I, and I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's a problem, I suppose, if you want to like delve into those venues. But I don't know. What are your guys' experiences like? You know, I,
2: I think it's, very similar to what goes on with. I, I think you're absolutely right. By the way, like Twitter is a very personalized experience, and when I look at my wife's Twitter feed, I'm like, "What the heck is this? <laughs> like, it's just, it's to, totally different. There's nothing about uh, it's the a Fed totally different. At all. I mean, this, yeah, isn't, yeah, right. this, isn't, this isn't even fun. There's no memes.
0: There's no. It's like right. you know, this, is a, this is about being you know a business operator and parenting. I, I don't want to do any of this. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's um. It's a totally different experience, so so it's super personalized, and you're absolutely right about that. But I think the the issue is like a, a broader one, and it, it like gets back to, um, you know, the same thing hap- that happens with Joe Rogan, where like pe- a lot of people hate Joe Rogan, and they know right. nothing about Joe Rogan. Like they're right. like, oh, he's terrible. Like he's this like right wing, and that's like <laughs> <I know>. it's <laughs> that not true. It's like absolutely not that. true. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it, it and they and they but they have like a um you know, profound hatred for him. And I, I feel like it's the same thing with Musk. I mean, granted, like Musk's a controversial person, and, you know, I can certainly see that there are like some things that he's done that people don't like. But overall, it's like he's whatever. He's fine. He's entertaining. You know, it doesn't bother me. Positive person. Yeah. I don't think he's gonna turn he has no intention of turning Twitter into like some hellscape. Um and so and and yet but I think it's the same thing where like people don't understand him and haven't like paid attention to what he what he's done they've just demonized him for some reason um because he's on like the other team i guess Uh, i mean i I say this as someone who's a democrat who like i I shouldn't say i don't like to identify i don't say like say i am a democrat i like to say i vote for democrats Um, but I'm just like, this is crazy. Like this, the fears are like people leaving the platform just because he bought it is absurd. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that says, and to Mark's point, uh, you know, Mark and I don't al- always agree on certain political views. Uh, I identify as an, you know, independent, but the, um, you know, I'm, and I'm critical on a lot of Elon Musk actions and his other companies, uh, are just as a business leader in general. Um, I don't think he's always the most, uh, I think he'd be very disingenuous. I think he's used a lot of, um, federal subsidies, uh, and he, you know, skirts the letter of the law in some cases, but you know, you should, if you're having an honest debate, you got to say there's a difference between, you know, liking who a person is for, you know, some of his actions, his or her actions versus the product. And you got to separate or the business and you got to separate those, I think many times. And, yeah, you know, that that's maybe a, a tangent, but you know, back to the digital town square idea What what is hate speech. I mean, I think it's you know, it takes real effort to actually on social media to go and seek out and consume different points of view. Most people live in these little, you know, walled gardens and digital echo chambers that are reinforcing their points of view or are, you know, in Twitter's case, you know, curated to your experiences. So you know, I, I think, you know, it, taking a politics example, there's plenty of examples of people are just talking past each other or not even talking to each other at all or talking about totally different experiences. So, you know, I don't know, you know, Jeff, you're more the technology technical understanding on how you could probably create algorithms to, you know, make sure that certain, you know, racial epithets don't, you know, appear to, you know, people or is like not, you know, general invective aimed at people, but if people are just offended by a different point of view, you know, and they're choosing to opt out, like that is, that says much more about, you know, a person, uh, who's, you know, consuming that information than it necessarily a person saying that information.
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I don't know. I think it is difficult. I mean, that I'm trying to think of like the things I've actually, the examples I've heard where it's, it really is a problem and like people do get attacked on there, but it's one of these things where it's like you jump into an argument with a bunch of people that like hate you and you hate them. And then you think that's going to go real well. Like, I don't know. But again, it's just like a different way of using the platform, which I'm never going to use it that way. So I don't know that much about it. Yeah. Anyway, should we wrap this up here? Uh, I like it. Recommendations. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any this week, but I watched um, the Bo Jackson 30 for 30. It's Ooh. like an old one. I don't know why I thought about it randomly and I was like, I have to rewatch that. It's season two, episode six. Um, it's freaking awesome. Bo Jackson, possibly like the greatest athlete to ever live. Like Incredible. The, yeah. the stories from that, I would highly recommend you go watch it if you haven't, if you're at any way into sports because it's... He just did these ridiculous things. Like he just he struck out and he broke a bat over his head because that's a thing a human can do <laughs> is break a baseball bat over your head. Like bananas, of, it's crazy. And there's like oh, a do- dozens of them. It's it's nuts. So that, it was good. I highly recommend it. That catch over on where he ran up
0: the outfield wall. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. Nuts. Yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. He threw it from like the the wall itself to the catcher. Like without a bounce, perfectly, like right at his right at the guy that was sliding into home. I mean, it, all the things, yeah, is just ridiculous. The fastest ever combine time, uh, 40. Still stands, right? I it might still what, stand. What was it? It's like a four, it must have been like a
2: four, two, some. Oh, wow, it was a four, one,
1: two, or something like that. Yeah, it's and he, Jeez. you know, he weighed. 230. Like, he was a running back. Like, it's just... Insane. Yeah. It's just Dignitas. bonkers.
2: Anyway, yeah. it was It's a good watch. I'll have to check that out. Um, mine is a also sports-related one. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's been recommended before, but uh, I just started watching Welcome to Wrexham. Yes. And, uh, it's good. If you haven't checked it out, you should definitely it's check so it out. It's so good. Uh, I'm not, not that far in yet, but uh, I've really enjoyed it. I just
1: I finished I just finished it and yeah it's it's I think one of my favorite shows ever at this point like it's just such a a, a happy show it's a good feel good story it is it really is oh I've got a question for you Julian why do the soccer players wear what appears to be a sports bra on uh,
0: welcome to Wrexham?
1: yeah all the guys not all of them but a lot of them wear these things that look like sports bras. I'm assuming it's some sort of technology, heart rate monitoring thing.
0: Did that? Come, did that come up in the show? I uh, no.
1: They're just in the locker room like, and they uh, have their jerseys off and they're wearing these weird things.
0: I, I've seen it where I, uh, you know, basically it's like performance, like undershirts. Right. Yeah, what it is. but I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not sh- off the top of my head. I don't, I'm not gonna let you into like the secret soccer cult where we you know, tell you about our you know, Mormon pajamas. But <laughs> I the, feel like Flynn uh, might know. Yeah, the, I, yeah, I thought I thought yeah, I've seen some of the stuff. You know, kind of see like the NBA players wear like the special like armbands that are you know they're they're uh, keeping their you know, muscles warm and you know, whatnot. But I don't think they're necessarily smart like heart monitor. And, but I'm not re- remembering the exact episode you're referring to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've, I'm not wearing one right now. If that's what you're asking. <laughs>
2: That's what I was wondering. Yeah, side. Side. <laughs> no,
0: performance enhancing <laughs> podcasting going on here, uh, just right from the cuff. <laughs> nice. Julian, you have one? Yeah, uh, two, actually. The um, first one was a book. Um, I think it's kind of more on the the history and new world order question. Um, i recommended it before in previous conversations. Uh, it's uh, The Fourth Turning. The authors are um, – at least one of the authors is – I believe it's Strauss and Howe. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just a, it's a theoretical framework to look at history, both of societies, um, and it uses like a, a theory around like seasonal cycles of like a whole generation. And, you know, sometimes, you know, based on our earlier conversation in the show, you know, when you think about like how empires rise and fall or systems rise and fall and how it can seem bleak or maybe darkest before the dawn, you realize if you study history that some of these things are not new at all. They've happened many times before and it just is an interesting framework and thought provoking framework on how to view the world. And, uh, it's a really, really great read, um, done by both a, uh, a historian and I believe a demographer, um, which is, you know, just an interesting combination. So I would uh, recommend that. And then on a more lighthearted note, uh, talk about random movies to sign a watch on the weekends for, uh, when you're tired, uh, at night uh, with kids is uh, I watched the most recent Wes Anderson movie, um, the Paris dispatch.
1: I think it came oh, out. A couple I didn't even years- know there was a new one out.
0: Yeah. I think it came out a couple years ago, uh, but I found it, I believe on HBO max. Um, but you know, typical Wes Anderson movie, uh great ensemble cast, uh, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, uh, Jeffrey Wright. Um, and it is, it uh, is probably the best one I've seen since the, uh, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, um, which was Ooh, nice. uh, a classic. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. If you if you like Wes Anderson movies, you're gonna like this. And if you like Bill Murray, you're definitely gonna like this.
1: I, I'll have to check that out because I almost rewatched The Grand Budapest Hotel recently, which I also loved from Wes Anderson. Nice, cool guys. Well, we did it. Great work, great work all great around. Work, good times good times maybe maybe mike will be done with his pottery next week we'll see yeah maybe call <laughs>
0: maybe all four of us could get on here one time you've done it once yeah, maybe, it'd be nice to do it again
1: <laughs> nice to do it again all right well bye bye everyone good talk good talk